After four days of intensive ICA congressing, we're back in our hotel room. It's Thursday. We spent a few hours at the beach. We did. And now we're trying to summarize and digest all the many, many... 14? 14 Four, interviews. 14 interviews we did during the ICA Congress. Uh, it's been a lot of arbitration talk, even for two people who talk about arbitration professionally. <laughs> I didn't. I like forgot about some of the interviews. That's how intense it was. It's gonna be so good to get this going. We will release this particular episode that you're now listening to, of course, immediately after the ICA Congress, and then I think we will be sort of uh, putting them out on a regular schedule. Uh, with with a clear ICA focus, there's so much substance. We we uh, even though we would love to put all the ten hours out there at once, maybe that would be too much for some of our weaker listeners who don't have the same mental bandwidth. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's really what it is. Is that even though these are all coming from one short span of time, they're so diverse and they're they're covering very substantive issues. So it doesn't. I think it would be fine to have it in different different episodes. Yeah, that's a very good setup. Hopefully. Uh, but we'll have some income material from this podcast. Uh, in particular, we're, of course, very happy to to uh, have spoken to the outgoing and the incoming ICA president, Gabriel Kaufman Kohler and, and Donald Donovan. Really, the other way around. Donald Donovan is the outgoing. Right. And as of now, basically, uh, Gabriel Kaufman Kohler is the new ICA president. There's a picture of us on the ICA Twitter if you guys want to see us interviewing them too. And we're just these two like eager squirrels with our eyes open really wide and they're seasoned professionals that couldn't care less what was happening. And also our studio within quotation marks. Yeah, tell them about the studio. <laughs> so when we got to ICA, yeah, and, and this is not something that reflects poorly on ICA in any way, because they had helped us and, and ensured that we had a, a room of our own, which yes, was very thank helpful. You, ICA. Yeah, thank you very much for that. But when we got there, we also realized that. that the recording wasn't optimal because it was uh, like a conference room. So we basically had a bunch of people try to find whatever soft tissue we could find in the, the major ICA, the ICC Congress building of Sydney in order to ensure that we could uh, get a better sound level. And being lawyers and not technicians, that was sort of a challenge. So we ended up with a bunch of partitions. We stole a couch or two and then we threw tablecloths on every surface. Over the partition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I think the sound levels are um, on an acceptable level. I think they're what you what you would expect from this makeshift operation that is the arbitration station. Yeah, there's a little reverb is the word I've been using. I don't know if that's the technical word for it. <laughs> it sounds good. But something rebounding, noise rebounding off the walls. But we really, we did make it work and it felt like a real garage band type of uh, podcast, which is which is the total vibe we go we go for. Yeah, that's what we were looking for. So we, we speak to these two people who, of course, both played a significant role in, in this uh, arbitration Olympics that we've just experienced. And then uh, we, we have a, an interview else. with Max Bunnell, who is a partner at White & Case, newly made partner at White & Case. Oh, he lateraled over. It's not like he was a junior. Um, and here in Sydney, because we have not talked about Sydney in the Place of Arbitration series, and we're in Sydney, and the Congress is in Sydney, so we thought it would be perfect timing. But to really give a testament to what this Congress is about, we were at a cocktail reception after the first day, and I met one of Max's associates, and we got to talking, and said Max should be on the podcast, and then we set it up via email, and 
And then he was in the studio and giving us a great interview. So that really giving is... you a great interview because I actually took the opportunity to sneak out and, right. and listen to one of the the more interesting panels. That, to me, at least, of course, there's a lot of material, so you have to more interesting of the other panels, not more interesting than Max Bonnell. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but the, it's been a tricky balance for us, as you, dear listeners, will will figure out. Uh, we we didn't have uh, that much opportunity to to view all the panels because we were also, of course, interviewing people consistently 14 interviews and that's a lot of time yes. spent recording but for this episode we also customarily stick to our happy fun time which does not have a lot to do actually with it, it does actually do you remember when we interviewed Campbell McLaughlin and Matthew Weiniger yes about their book they said that because they've been working for 10 years now on a second edition of their major treaties on substantive principles in investment arbitration and they said, or Campbell said, that they had no major substantive disagreements during the writing period, which I took as a hint that they had style disagreements, right. <laughs> like an implicit uh, ad- admittance to that. So in that sense, maybe we, we got some inspiration from that, because we're going to talk a little bit about styles in drafting. Yes, and I, t- I actually talked to someone from Curtis called Kate Brown Devehar, and she said that, you know, she got on this topic about writing and how it's an art and we all need to like really focus on it. And it is a huge part of what we do. But I think that when you make it an art, that means style becomes a huge thing and people get really pissed in different types of situations. Specifically, I think we'll address some of the, uh, in our junior progressive minds, antiquated grammar rules and the directives that sometimes come from up above with people who got the training in the times of Shakespeare, it feels like. Right. And also native between native and non-native writers and kind of maybe some differences that we notice. Right. So poetry is the topic for the happy fun time. (laughs) But that being said, let's get the arbitration stations, ICA Congress uh, special episodes going with the interviews interview, first of all, with Gabriel Kaufman-Kohler and Donald Donovan. So we're in company of arbitration royalty. Donald Donovan, who is for another 24 hours or so the president of ICA, and Gabriel Kaufman-Kohler, who at that point will step in and take over. Welcome. Thanks. Enjoy being here. Is it, was I just correct? Is it formally so that at the close of the conference you will formally hand over to Gabriel? That's absolutely right. The, the turnover is on, I guess it's 18 April. We haven't figured out exactly the time <laughs> <laughs> as a constitutional matter. Cinderella but story. I will tell you that as a practical matter, uh, at the beginning of the closing plenary, I will metaphysically hand over the baton to Gabrielle and she will look forward to Edinburgh for two years. Absolutely, yes. And then it's uh, for how many years? How how long is the mandate? It's two years. So you from get from one Congress to the next Congress. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And then you're supposed to hand over the baton to somebody else, or is it also possible to extend for another two years? It is not. Okay, <laughs> that's a constitutional limit. <laughs> well, it, this does come out of the the transformation of of ICA that's been in train for five or six years and is now essentially complete, that we really decided we needed to make sure, as, as a lot of institutions, boards and the like, that there was regular turnover. So we've done that with respect to the governing body, um, where there are now four-year terms with the possibility of one renewal, uh, and with the president's uh, position, which is a two-year term with 
no uh, possibility of renewal. But, of course, you know, we are blessed with so many strong people and so many folks who would be fabulous leaders, um, you know, Gabrielle foremost amongst them, but it really makes sense. A two-year term, it allows you, particularly having implemented another um, procedure, which is, I think, very standard, which is that we now elect our president-elect a year in advance. Mm-hmm. So that allows the president-elect to figure out what he or she wants to do, to be completely prepared to take over at the start of the term, two years to do what you want to do, and then give somebody else a chance. I think it's really a, a healthy structure. So with that in mind, I mean, were you, now that you're coming to the end, <laughs> you had that year to prepare, and do you think that you were able to achieve everything that you had strived to Does one achieve? ever achieve everything? <laughs> <No. you're back laughs> in my case, it was, a, it was slightly different, although effectively the same, in that um, Albert Yan actually had the last four-year term and then decided... I think it, consistent with the, all the, the reasons why we made it a two-year term that he should step down after two, but he, he didn't make that decision a year in advance. So I had perhaps a slightly shorter period <laughs> as president-elect, I think four or six months. So that one could, I, I should say, of course, you should be able to figure out what you want to do, particularly if you've been associated with the organization for some time. So uh, that, that was fine. Um, but no, I think, I'm, I'm, I think it's been, uh, the organization is in good shape. So if you ask me, did I get done everything I would have liked to have done? Of course, I didn't. The real problem, of course, when you have a position like this is during the course of the two years, you have ideas. You know, you, the ideas don't stop coming the day right. you take over. <laughs> and, of course, at some point, you, you, it becomes the, the case that you want to compare very, consult very carefully with your successor to make sure you're not launching something to which they're not committed. So. Mm-hmm. But no, it's been, um, you know, I'm, I'm content that I had my chance. This may sound like a uh, simple and banal question, given where we are, especially, and with whom we're talking. But for those of our listeners who aren't as well-versed in international arbitration, what is ICA, if we back it up a little bit? <laughs> Obviously, uh, we are here because of ICA's Congress, but what, what does ICA really do? What does it really do? You know, the, the ICA's got fascinating origins and that it was founded a very long time ago, I guess now close to 60 years, by a group of people who had convened for negotiations about the European Convention uh, on, uh, on, uh, on awards. And they wanted to create a body that would publish material on international arbitration, convene conferences. But it was a very small group and for a long time the ICA really was, people literally, when Gabriel and, I, Gabriel and I first joined, we, we joined together 20 years ago, um, elected to the then council, really thought of themselves as a group of friends um, who were pr- committed to this, uh, to this enterprise, um, international arbitration. The core of the activity was for a long time uh, the publications, um, which were run with, um, with support of the, of the PCA. Um, and I, I, the transformation that we refer to, it started, you know, as I say, maybe six or eight years ago, when we realized that that somewhat informal structure just didn't, um, didn't work anymore. But whatever the structure and governance which we have reformed, and the mission of ICA, and I think the, 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 if I may say so, the status of ICA has long been consistent. I think it has been looked to as, it's not an administering organization, um, it's not a, a strictly speaking academic organization, but it has had a core mission to promote and facilitate international arbitration around the world, and it has enlisted people who are regarded as leaders in the field to do that. Uh, and so the mission has been remarkably consistent, um, and I think the Congress, which is obviously the flagship event, along with the um, the publications, 
developed a reputation as the every two years the place at which kind of the community came together and um, and produced it must be said um, uh, there has always been a real emphasis at the Congress on on a product of lasting value and those two things came together and made ICA really I think fair to say the leading organization in the international arbitration universe so what do you do in between the congresses. <laughs> I'm looking at Gabriella, asking what, what you have to look forward to in the upcoming no, no, tweets. There are the publications, of course, the yearbook, the handbook. Uh, they, they're really references in international arbitration. So that is an ongoing uh, project throughout the years. And then, of course, there's uh, all kinds of other activities that go on during the year, the, road, the New York Convention roadshows, uh, there's a number of task forces on specific topics. Some are, are lasting ones, others are just uh, for one occasion to, to come up with a report. So we have the damages task force right now, which is working. We have and that will continue. third party funding. Mm -hmm. The damages task force is not completed. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely, will continue. The third-party funding uh, task force has just launched its report this morning, so they are done. Uh, there are other task forces that are being considered, or, or, and that we'll have to select the topics where we really ma can make a difference and, and, and be relevant uh, for purposes of the evolution of international dispute set settlement, and then we also have to I see that we manage our resources intelligently, but there's a, there's a lot of activities going yeah. from one Congress <laughs> to the other. And I mean, Edinburgh is now being, we see them in kilts in the, <laughs> in the outside of the conference venue, which is quite nice, but it's not necessarily the seat of arbitration that comes to everyone's mind. How do you see this Congress, you know, looking forward to this Congress, what do you, what do you think is going to be the goals in that? Well, it's an opportunity to return to Europe after uh, many years. So the last Congress was 2006, if I'm not mistaken, maybe. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah, that's right. So it will be 12, yeah. no, 2008. It will be a long time since we have not been in Europe. And okay. so that, that is a good occasion. Yeah. Uh, have you both been going to most of the Congresses past? I went to practically everyone. I know I missed <laughs> Mauritius for several oh. reasons, but that, I think that's the only one I missed. You should be having out pins or something that you can collect year by year. <laughs> I think that's right. that, that must be the only one you've missed. I actually started going, I remember the first one I went to when I first started practicing was in Vienna. And I think that would have been maybe 1992. It's a while ago, but I, I don't think I've missed any since. I certainly haven't missed any since I've been on the, well, the first, the council first and then the governing one body. was 1986. Well, so, wow. In Which Lausanne. People in the business, we, we uh, on the podcast, we've been jokingly referring to this as the, the arbitration Olympics and the way we talk about this now with the, the cities and the years yeah. and everything. It, it, it's very, <laughs> it's a good analogy. Maybe you would not agree, but how does it work when 
what's the process like when when the city wants to host an ICA Congress? Is it like when the Olympics are being up for grabs and you have all these uh, commissions and people are bidding and is it anything like that or what, what is the process like? The, the Olympic analogy is accurate. I mean, we, we don't have the resources, even with the, with the what I'll call the transformed ICA, where we actually have a, a bureau and, and the like. We don't have the resources to put on a pro, um, um, a, an event like this. So for a very long time, the process has been that cities and specific institutions or organizations within a city will put together a bid and will come to the governing body um, we've been blessed, and particularly in recent years, we've really been blessed with a lot of very strong proposals. Um, and the governing body takes into account a wide variety of considerations, you know, what, what the organization wants to have at the end of the day's impact. And so we look at various places and you know, where we can have the greatest impact, but also we obviously want to go, uh, we, it's a global organization, we want to go to different places. You know, so we will, we will go to Edinburgh in, 20, uh, in 2020. It looks highly likely that we'll have the non-Congress year event next year in Mexico City. We've now just selected Hong Kong for 2022. Um, the decision about where to go in 2021 will be will be made much further down the pike. But the governing body sits down, considers the, takes account of the various considerations you know, in light of where are we gonna most effectively pursue the mission and decides, but then it's very much a collaboration between the host committee on the one hand who actually puts on the event mm-hmm. and the, and ICA uh, through the program committee, which provides the content. And so in that respect, it really is similar to the Olympics in that it's a, it's a real collaboration. More on this how it's selected question, um, talking about um, you know these panels that you have and how to be on a panel and how to speak at the panel. And it was also nice to see that you have a young thought leaders panel this year to help the younger generation enter. Um, how does that, what is, what is the thought, is there a thought process behind that? Is it a science between, okay, we need a, someone from this region, this region, this region, we need to have this many women, we need to have a young person? I mean, how complex of a science is the panel formation? That's the work of the, of the program committee, okay. absolutely. Uh, there's certainly a balancing of different uh, regions, gender, age, uh, obviously, the main goal is to have good quality uh, uh, presentations. So obviously that that is one of the main considerations. But in addition, you, you take the the other factors into account. So. Right. We thought we thought we had prepared a, a clever, light, tough question on on the on the pledge, and we could talk a little bit about diversity, and that we. Uh, uh, then we uh, heard uh, the call to arms yesterday in, in Donald's speech, in which you brought up the pledge and the need for for diversity to uh, to permeate uh, ICA's work. Well, I'm, I'm I'm pleased to hear you describe it as a call to arms because that's the way we meant it. Um, with respect to the pledge, you know, ICA has really very long before the pledge, long devoted to the idea of increasing participation um, in the in the aspects relevant to an organization like ICA. Obviously, we're not an appointing authority; we're not a law firm. In the but we have, over the last, at least the last decade, um, really tried to make sure that there was equal opportunity within the panels, within task forces. You know, the, the diversity of the governing body has increased over those, those periods of time. So with respect to the pledge, although we haven't formally signed it, we have very much been committed to its principles and will sign it. But we also, in discussing it amongst ourselves, wanted to really expand the focus. I mean, as I said, 
um, yesterday, it, it, the international arbitration system cannot achieve its goals unless it is it reflect, the actors within the system, arbitrators, practitioners, administrators, and the like, reflect the populations affected by the outcomes. And so we really wanted to call upon the international arbitration community. Um, needless to say, gender diversity is extremely important, but we also want to expand it to race, ethnicity, regional diversity, and the like. So that will be, uh, I think, I think we need to make that, we as in both ICA and the international arbitration community make, need to make that a priority. And so we, at their discussion, we made that, as you called it, call to arms. And we do mean it when I said we want to engage with other organizations. It's not something ICA can obviously achieve on its own. We do want to engage with other but at the same time, do you feel a, a certain responsibility because ICA is, as you say, sort of the, the major event? It, it really is uh, the face of the business when you look around this room. Most of the people who are involved uh, one way or the other with international arbitration at one point, they will be at an ICA Congress, and most of them are, in fact, in the same room at the same time. <laughs> I didn't mean to suggest we were calling on everybody else to do something that we weren't prepared to do. I mean, right. we, we, we include ourselves in that, in that you know, stepping up. Um, and indeed, part of the, the, the uh, this has come about because we recognized the need to do that and created a, uh, a diversity and inclusion task force within ECA to, to really examine everything we're doing to make sure that we're pursuing those values. But it really, the, the next logical step when we looked around and said, well, you know, for precisely the reason you say, we, we do play a role in the international arbitration community. We wanted to call upon all our colleagues to, to join us in, the, in that fight. In this uh, dress rehearsal for tomorrow's handover of power that we're having now, <laughs> uh, do you have anything, Donald, for, for Gabrielle when you, as you hand over the baton, or is it more like hands off and now it's up to Gabrielle to, to do whatever she wants? <laughs> well, to some extent, I suppose, you, um, you, there is, of course, a continuum, right? And, and one of the, the useful things about the structure we've now set up is we haven't done anything for the last year without close consultation with right. Gabrielle. Uh, as part of it. And formally, uh, the president-elect is a member of the executive body, and you, we consult on all, all important matters with the executive body as well. So, you know, Gabrielle has been part of the planning, so she will step in seamlessly. Um, past that, I would be very foolish to think that I, I could suggest to Gabrielle, a person of such intellect, stature, and competence of how she should run her show. But I'm going I'm to look forward to supporting her and have a lot of fun watching what she achieves. Um, but it, I don't mean to suggest that although we'll make a, you know, we will have a, 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 transit, a, a handover, I really do think of it as very much a continuous transition. I will step to the back. But, um, but, the, but the leadership, which I say is, I think we're just blessed with extremely strong leadership, it will be continuing because right. you know, Lucy will step in, Funky will enter her second year, Meg's just finished a, you know, extraordinarily productive two-year term, Michael will continue. The governing body, we really do now have, in a, situa have a situation where we're completely rejuvenating it every two years, diversifying, and people come in with, you know, with a commitment to do the work. That's the other, one of the other changes is, you know, people... I think it's a mark of respect when you're elected to the governing body, but we have wanted to make the point that it's not an honorific. Everybody who comes onto the governing body makes a commitment to the contribute to the work. Right. 
On your end, Gabriel, do you agree with the continuum or do, do we expect a revolution tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> no revolution. Give me that torch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will try to keep up with the high standards that Donald has set. Uh, that in and of itself will already be a challenge. And then there's a number of projects that are ongoing and the uh, task force on diversity and inclusion is certainly one of the important ones on which I will continue to focus. Uh, Any other task force or, or other notions uh, that you're... There's, a, there's another uh, objective that I would like to pursue as a, a closer integration and cooperation with young ECA. They're uh, extremely dynamic. Uh, there are numerous members, more, over 4,000, and it they're the future of the organization and so we really need to make sure that uh, they're well integrated that is one thing I'd like to do too and then there may be other topics on which we want to work more particularly uh, there's a number of ideas floating <laughs> now but uh, you give me a little time we'll get back to you give you the answers on that well, it goes with the, the topic of this year's Congress, which is evolution and adaptation, right? It's just like forward thinking and including the younger generation. I think it's a really great uh, effort to champion, especially with our listeners that tend to be of a younger generation. Yeah, what is the formal relationship, if there is one, between young ICA and ICA as of now? Is, is young ICA under the ICA umbrella or is it sort of a separate entity that shares the name? <laughs> Do you know? Well, it's been, it was, it's a, it's a very, one of the, the really brilliant aspects of Young Eka, it has been so informally organized. So, you know, obviously it's, you know, it, it does not have a legal status. It has been, uh, it, it has a governance and the like, and it ha operates very much on consensus. Its relationship to Eka is obviously we have, you know, it's, it's grown up um, with our support. Um, we do have on the governing body a Young ICA committee, and that Young ICA committee is composed of the three Young ICA co-chairs and then three members of the governing body itself. Um, and the purpose of that committee is to make sure that we support what they're doing. Uh, and we do support whatever they're doing. We, call, we, we answer their call whenever they're looking for assistance. One of the important parts of their program is, of course, the mentorship program, now entering the fifth cycle. And that has always been a project between the two of us because the mentors until recently have come, I think, exclusively from the governing body. And one of the decisions taken with this most recent cycle is that we would expand, because there's so much demand for the mentorship program, we would reach out to other members of the international arbitration community and ask them if they would serve as mentors. So that's been a very close collaboration. Um, but they, you know, one of the spectacular things about... Um, about the uh, about Young Ica, we had a conversation uh, a year ago in D.C. at the at the non-Congress year meeting of the governing body, which we had uh, in D.C. and we convened the, the chairs with a six, you know, a couple of the Young Ica, uh, the governing body co-chairs, and just talked through how we could help them. And one of the things proposed, we said, well, you know, should we hire somebody in the bureau, um, kind of on maybe a half-time basis to just support all your work. Um, uh, given all the things that you folks are taking on, and they said, "Hell no, we're not going to do it." <laughs> we got. No, we don't need it. We do this for pure volunteers, as you know. There's no cost to join Young Eka. They do it all on a volunteer basis. But the 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 explosion of energy out of Young Eka has really been remarkable. 
Mm-hmm. We've spoken highly on the podcast about the mentor program specifically, which I think has been a tremendous thing. And many stories that we've shared from younger lawyers who've been going to the private homes of senior <laughs> right. arbitrators, you know, cooking dinners <laughs> and drinking wine together and cross-examining in the morning. <laughs> very, very good. Well, we really thank you for sitting down with us. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts, but um, other than that, we really appreciate you guys taking the time and and sharing your story and allowing us to be here and bringing some new electronics into into ICA. <laughs> no, we appreciate the chance to talk. I, I can only say I couldn't be more pleased that that uh, Gabrielle is going to take over tomorrow. I think she the next next her term will be spectacular. Will you go on a holiday tomorrow now? <laughs> <laughs> you know how those things work. You you know you finish something, you think you're going to get this big chunk of time back, and sometime it somehow it just never, never works, works that way. Water <laughs> just fills, you know. Right, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, such busy people now, especially given what's going on outside of this tiny studio. Well, great, great to do what you folks are doing and making accessible these various aspects of the international arbitration community. It's great. So good to have had you here. Thank you so much. So we are sitting here with Max Bonnell, someone who has is going to represent Sydney in, uh, for our podcast. And we have the ICA in Sydney right now. So thank you for coming and talking to us. Thank you very much, Brian. Um, so you have just moved to White & Case in Sydney. And part of the press release that I was reading online was that you're supposed to build up the practice in the Asian Pacific region. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what your aims and goals are and what that really means to you. Well, um I suppose the uh, the primary goal is that Whiten case, as you know, has just uh, been recognised as the world's leading international arbitration firm for the third year running, uh, and globally it has a, a, a phenomenal team and a phenomenal reputation. Uh, it's fair to say that that reputation isn't at quite the same level in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, and that's not because the people we have aren't good. Uh, it's because uh, it's a fairly new team and people don't know a lot about us. Right. So uh, there are really uh, uh, four of us at the moment, uh, two in Seoul, Mark Goodrich and Junhee Lee. Uh, but Junhee started the day after I did, so okay. he's, he's, he's <laughs> even newer than me. Uh, myself in Sydney and Matt Seagum in Singapore. And together our mission is to... Uh, lift the Whiten case uh, name and brand uh, in this region up to the level it enjoys in the rest of the world. So it's not even, I mean, beyond the brand, do you have any goals as far as building up Sydney as a place to attract some type of disputes, or is it just to be a player in the game? Uh, it's really to be a player in the game. The, we, we may as well confront head-on the issue about Sydney as an arbitral seat. Let's do it. Sydney, in many ways, is a wonderful arbitral seat. Uh, It has courts that are strongly disposed to uphold arbitration agreements and arbitral awards. Uh, It has courts that are reluctant to interfere unnecessarily in arbitrations. Uh, I had personal experience of this last year when I was appointed arbitrator on a case Uh, and survived either three or four challenges, I can't remember how many, (laughs) uh, on a case that I I 
uh, that was low value and I had no particular interest in staying on, but uh, um, the courts were fairly robust in, in rejecting frivolous challenges. So uh, in many respects, uh, it's a great seat. It's a nice place to come. It's as cost effective as most other parts of the world. Um, the difficulty with Sydney as an arbitral centre, however, is that uh, parties tend to choose neutral seats in geographically convenient locations. Right. So if we could tow Sydney about a thousand kilometres north, we'd be dealing with something that was seriously viable. Right. Um, and if you had an arbitration between a company in Papua New Guinea and New Zealand, uh, then you'd have a geographically convenient seat. Uh, the difficulty is that there are relatively few places, even within the region, uh, for which it's easy to come to Sydney. Um, and, and that is an obstacle that Australia will always face. Uh, so it's very important that we have uh, good arbitration infrastructure, which we do have. Uh, but I, my own view is that uh, the growth of Sydney as a seat will be gradual and consistent and the trend will be upward, but the numbers will never be huge. Right. So what that means for my practice is uh, I guess over the last 15 years, uh, I've acted as counsel in something like 80 arbitrations. Uh, two of them have been seated in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not an atypical profile for an Australian arbitration lawyer. Right. Uh, so within the context of White and Case, um, what I'm looking at doing with the other partners in the region is building a practice that takes us, from my perspective, north, uh, just uh, into the, the, the broader Asia-Pacific region. And a lot of our disputes will be seated in Singapore or Hong Kong or China or um, uh, some of the more traditional seats. A lot are still seated in London. Right. But there'll be disputes where the clients and the evidence and the witnesses are in our backyard. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of disputes arising out of places like Indonesia and the Philippines where the seat will be Singapore. Right. And we think we've got a team that can service those kinds of disputes extremely well. Does it ever go west? Uh, very occasionally. Okay. Very occasionally. Um, but uh, the um, disputes out of um, uh, South and Central America are um, phenomenally well covered by the U.S. firms. Right, right. Um, White and Case, of course, is in, in a sense a, a U.S. firm. It's a global firm with its origins in the U.S. And, and we have terrifically good people who work in that region. So, But there are disputes that, that are involved there. I'm, I'm, I'm acting for an... Argentinian client at the moment. Um, so there's so, always something that come up. Yeah, so it can, you know, the, 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 the great thing about this work and the reason it's never dull is you never know where the next one's going to come from. Right, no, exactly. And uh, 
So, uh, you know, it, it can happen. But the core business, we think, is uh, projects, investments, transactions within the region, uh, wherever they arise. Uh, and in Australia, the big focus at the moment is on um, the infrastructure and LNG projects in Western Australia. Okay. Uh, because all of them have reached the point where they're generating colossal disputes. And most of those disputes are uh, seated in Singapore. Oh, really? Um, and uh, so there's a, there's a lot of work in that area, uh, which uh, White & Case has arrived in Australia perhaps a bit late to, to make the most of, but mm -hmm. um, we're, we're still playing is that being absorbed by Perth, or do they have an arbitration community there, or does it mostly always flow to Sydney? Uh, a lot of people in Perth are busy on this, uh, but a lot of Sydney lawyers are working on it too. Okay. Um, in an Australian context, you need to be cautious uh, when talking about what an arbitration lawyer is. Um, most lawyers who describe themselves as arbitration lawyers in Australia, not all, but most, uh, are primarily commercial litigators uh, who um, dabble. dabble. In, yeah. <laughs> and, and that creates significant problems for Australian arbitration because um, a small proportion of Australian arbitration lawyers uh, approach arbitration as a distinct and separate discipline. The vast majority still, which is surprising, uh, approach it fundamentally as if it's commercial litigation. So the first thing most Australian law firms will do when they have an arbitration come in is arm up with a big team of barristers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I've, I've had... Uh, for example, a time where I've put on uh, a notice of arbitration and the first thing I've received from the other side is a request for further and better particulars. <laughs> uh, so it does bleed into the procedure. Very much. Right. Um, I, I have known an Australian arbitration lawyer to brief two barristers on a large case to prepare the objections to admissibility of evidence. Right. Uh, needed to be explained to him that that was not a productive <laughs> use of his time. Right. Um, so there are a lot of people who are happy to jump up and down and say that they're international arbitration lawyers because they've done one. Mm -hmm. But they've run it like a Supreme Court case. Um, and the amount of arbitration in Australia is, is international arbitration in which Australian firms are involved is growing to the point where people who really want to specialise and do it properly uh, are growing in number. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a very healthy development. Uh, but the scene is still littered with people who haven't taken the trouble to learn the differences between um, the two forms of dispute resolution right. and believe that what has always worked for them in a different context will still work in this context. Right. Uh, and it means that um, some of the uh, worst performed opponents I have had in arbitration cases 
have been quite good Australian barristers. But they walk into an arbitration hearing and act as if they're in front of their Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it fails on so many levels. Uh, And it's, it's not a failure of talent or intellect it's a it's a it's a point of pride right that because they're very good at what they do what they do should translate no matter what no matter what Uh, and that's you know but that's it's it's going to take time and it's going to take more exposure to the work and the very best people are very good yeah Uh, but there are a significant number of others who who have some ground to catch up exactly I want to take you into the ISDS a little bit, uh, just because one of the things that put Australia on the map is when it was a respondent. Although it didn't go into the merits, it was definitely a case that was put on the map. Um, And then I was looking into Australia as a supporter of ISDS, and it hasn't always been glowing marks from the state as far as investor-friendly or... No. Um, What... Um happened with the Philip Morris case was that it triggered a response from um, the government that was then in power. Now, uh, by way of context, uh, we essentially have uh, two major parties in Australia. Uh, There is the Labour Party, which is a a sort of centre-left grouping. Uh, And then we have the Liberal Party, Liberal being an an Australian word meaning exceptionally conservative. (laughs) That's funny. And um, the Labour Party, uh, in the general scheme of things, is more inclined to regulate uh, business and industry and commerce and other things than the Liberal Party. And the Labour Party enacted the plain packaging tobacco uh, legislation. And also that same government made two attempts to um, pass, um, in effect, um, an emissions trading scheme. Uh, The purpose of which was uh, to close down power plants that burned brown coal. over a reasonable period of time so as to comply with the government's commitments on emissions reduction. Now, uh, neither of those two things are are projects that are particularly close to the heart of a Conservative government. So because the Labour Party was embarking upon a a platform of um, regulatory change, uh, it saw that uh, ISDS presented challenges to that. Of course. And so it commissioned a report from the Productivity Commission, which is a little government organisation squirrelled away down in Canberra, uh, to do an evaluation of whether including ISDS in uh, investment agreements was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And the Productivity Commission produced quite a lengthy document which concluded that there were no demonstrable benefits to including ISDS. Now, um, that I guess is a point that one could debate for some time because (laughs) unless you go to investors 
and ask them, was your decision to invest in Australia directly influenced by the presence of the rights you have under an investment treaty? Right. Uh, you'll never really know. It's a perennial problem with investment treaties that measuring their benefits uh, in a concrete way is difficult. And so it was then announced as a matter of government principle that um, uh, ISDS clauses would not be included in future investment and trade agreements. So it was all based on this product productivity report. That that was the that, that was the, the main catalyst. The logic behind it. Gotcha. Uh, and 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 it, it enabled the government to say, look, we've got a study that justifies the agreement. I suspect it was actually a political decision that they wanted to change things. The change would have an impact on investments, uh, and they wanted to be able to do it free from the threat of action. Uh, and it wasn't retrospective. They weren't withdrawing from treaties, it was a prospective decision. Uh, My view, incidentally, is that if you are going to exclude um, ISDS from investment treaties, the sensible thing to do is just not waste your time entering into investment treaties, because if they can't be enforced, they're useless. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, for some reason, the Australian government and, and I suppose now the Indian government persists in thinking that it's a logical course. Right. Anyway, the government changed. We now have a liberal government. Uh, it uh, has a, uh, an aggressively pro-business program uh, and it uh, resiled from the uh, decision to remove ISDS from future agreements. So Australia is now... Uh, a member of whatever this iteration of the Trans-Pacific Partnership is, is called, right. and it has, um, uh, subject to a few odd exceptions in side letters, uh, agreed to the ISDS regime in that agreement. Right. We heard um, a panel this morning about how the public-private um, sector is a bit mixed if you look at, for example, concession contracts or exploitation contracts, which you have quite a wealth of that on the in the Western Australia. Yes. Does that are there arbitration clauses for that? Is all of that going to arbitration, or is that usually litigated? Um, a lot of it is arbitrated, uh, and uh, there, there 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 is actually a large number of uh, of those sorts of arbitration clauses in the West, uh, mostly. Uh, it's accepted that um, uh, where there's a public dimension involved, uh, there are some things one can't exclude from the courts, right. um, you know, uh, constitutional issues and things of that nature. Um, but generally, um, we're, we're seeing a lot more arbitration clauses go in. That's great. More work for you, then. Well, that's the theory, yeah. <laughs> and the, 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 the greatest... Uh, the first large job of any arbitration lawyer in Australia is to convince his colleagues, his or her colleagues in the commercial groups, to put the clauses in. Exactly. Uh, so that's that's always your first and most important marketing call. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's. I think <clears throat> there's been quite a transition. Um, initially, uh, I mean, I've been doing this for about. 15 or 16 years, and initially there was a colossal scepticism about it. Uh, It was 
widely regarded in the Australian business community that there was something a little bit suspicious about arbitration uh, or that it was just an excuse for lawyers to get on planes. Jury's <laughs> uh, uh, still out on that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there was, a, there was a high level of scepticism. That, that you almost never find now. Um, what, what we actually need is for the Australian legal profession to uh, be a little bit more uh, agile and flexible when it comes to dealing with arbitration. Right. Um, I think that's a good call to action to wrap this up. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for being here. To infinitive or to split infinitive? That is the question. <laughs> Worst intro in arbitration session history. <laughs> we are talking about antiquated grammar rules. Not necessarily antiquated grammar rules, but grammar rules and grammar, st- grammar style points that people have. And people are really sticklers about the way they write. And um, because it is an art and it is your own personal style, it's cultural, it's personal, and uh, there's a lot of people, when you get drafts back from senior lawyers that have red ink all over it, a lot of it is style related, personally, my drafts that come back. Uh, Same so, here, actually. I've, I've had a few times, both academically and, and uh, professionally in terms of actual arbitration work, I've uh, expected substantive feedback and gotten enormous amounts of feedback exclusively on points of style right and i when i write for someone new i like to look at a writing sample of something that they have written so that i can mimic a lot of certain quirks that they like um and then if i continue writing for them i make sure to adjust to how they write even though i may not agree with how they write or two people are writing completely different um and let's just say that as a baseline i think that of course if you're writing for somebody else or you're, you're doing something that, that's not going to have primarily your name on it, the only right approach is the approach of the person on whose behalf you're writing. Yeah, because that it's their name at the bottom. Right. But that being said, of course, you may have uh, one or two or 15 views on style that does not really necessarily uh, comply with theirs. Right. And so I, sorry. let's start with number one, because that's a hot topic. Never split an infinitive. Thoughts. <laughs> I, I've heard this many, many times, and I don't really know where to put my foot down. May I preface this whole discussion? Yes. By saying it is also, there's an added layer of complexity here, which is, of course, that most of us, or many of us, you excluded, and many others, of course, uh, we are primarily drafting in a second language, or right. even a third language. And then when you are doing it in a context in which there are other people who are more proficient and actually know what they're talking about, it's not that easy to be confident. And this is something, the split infinitive or the the rule that you should never split an infinitive is is a prime example of this because this is something that as an average non-native speaker, it's a non-issue. And then if you get sort of second-guessed by a more senior person... right. It's very hard to say, well, that sounds like a stupid rule. Okay, I'll do whatever you prefer. Right. And then you actually may change the course of your entire writing style for the rest of your career because you learned back somewhere that someone doesn't split infinitives. And as a second language, you know, as a second language, you're like, oh, then I just learned it wrong and I need to learn this correctly. We've name checked. We haven't actually name checked. We've mentioned this 
uh, anonymous Cambridge PhD student a few times who does a lot of data-driven research. We can probably say his name at this point just by, by way of thank you, Damien Chalotin at, at University of Cambridge, who the, the guy, if you recall, way back when in the Born Arbitration episode uh, in the very beginning of this podcast, uh, who does research similar to what was used in the Yukos challenge, looking at language and basically quantifying various data points and and how arbitrators write. Uh, he mentioned offhand sometime when we talked about this a long time ago that the easiest way to identify who's written something is on these points rather than on substance. Ah. So that's basically what you look for primarily. Like, do you use an Oxford comma? Do you split infinitives? Wait, oh, yeah. Oxford comma. But that's coming up. That's coming up. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, I just thought that was a, an interesting tidbit. That point, because you tend to be consistent with your style. Yeah. Maybe more so than on your substance sometimes. So that's a good way to, to look for, like who's behind this text and that is, that is of course something that you already hinted at that you try to look at as a junior when you're writing on behalf of somebody else alright well I put two foot down two feet down on the split infinitive <laughs> yeah, problem th- on that particular grammar point I think we should say two feet and not two foot but that's just <laughs> my personal opinion uh, yeah it's definitely I like to split infinitive <laughs> that sounds oddly sexual uh, I like <laughs> I like to split infinitives because I think it gives emphasis in a way that, and I th- and it just sounds awkward. And especially as a native speaker, when you're writing, you kind of speak it out loud if you if something's a bit clunky in your writing. Uh, Can we just what is a split infinitive? Okay, so when the verb to run, to run is the infinitive. So I run, you run, we run. To run is the infinitive. It's the non conjugated form. To split it means you're putting an adverb between the two and the unconjugated verb. So if you want to carefully consider something, that's splitting the verb to consider with carefully. And I think that sounds great. I want to carefully consider this. Mm. As opposed to you carefully want to consider, which would be the right. non-splitting. Or I want carefully to consider, or I want to consider carefully. Yeah. All of those sound very awkward to me, and it and I, that will never change. <laughs> but if I'm writing for certain people, especially you know over a certain age, they don't like to split the infinitive, and that comes from an old English rule that you were just taught in grammar, in grammar school. And as with everything that is related to language, language evolves, and even though there might be a few certain hard rules, most rules aren't that set in stone and may evolve over time so the question is really at what point are we right in this uh, evolution of language i mean twerk is in the dictionary now so you get with the times <laughs> uh active verb are always active verbs are always better than passive verbs explain you that. agree with that i agree with that but you probably have to explain it you say um the judgment was rendered by the court oh yeah yeah, yeah. instead of the court rendered a yeah. judgment yeah 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 and I, I, I was taught in legal writing all, th- all through law school that it had to, everything had to be an active verb because when you have the noun or the subject at the end of the sentence, it can get confusing when yeah, the yeah. sentence Yeah, always start the sentence with the subject, basically, or the noun for that. Right, matter. and that just makes things a lot more simple. However, in Swedish, there's a lot of acceptance for passive voice. Um, so I... You think? Yeah. I think you've only been exposed to bad Swedish writing then. Because I think the, the, the rule or like the general policy is exactly the same in Swedish and in many other languages. I think that's just like a universal legal writing. It makes it a, a bit more, I mean, it's less flowery 
and less interesting. Yeah. But, but it, it, it conveys the point in the most efficient way to get like the, the, the active part of the sentence out first. And that is, I think, universal. And that's the way I was taught to write legal Swedish too. Okay. So maybe just the Swedish that I've learned or that I've seen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe. Like, ett avtal in yix. In legal writing, really? Yeah. Well, well, I, uh, that yeah. was the, the briefs that I wrote for the secretariat. So maybe that wasn't Okay, it. so that, that that would mean in English that a contract was entered into. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I would I would really write, like, the person X and Y entered into an entered agreement. Entered into an agreement. Okay, Absolutely. I think Even we're... in Swedish. I think we're on the same page on that one. Active verbs, yes. What, what is the... Going back to split infinitives, what what is really? Do we know this? What is like the the general consensus outside of the legal community in legal English? Aside, like English generally, do you know has English moved away from this split infinitive? Yeah. Yes, I, I mean it's a rule that is not basically all these are style points now. Where whereas before it used to be a rule that would say this is bad grammar. Okay. Now it's a style thing. But even if it's a style thing, mm-hmm. is there a presumption or a default? Is there something that is the more accepted version? Or is it basically now it's up to you? I've Googled preference? this left, right, and center because I was so angry when someone told me not to split infinitives and there was no consensus on the split infinitive issue. And means. in this scenario, did you go back to that person and told him? No, because <laughs> I'm a whipping boy. Uh, okay, never start a sentence with a conjunction and or or but. Yeah, no issues. With I that. agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Never start a sentence with "this is interesting" with "there are" or "there is." What? And so here's this I haven't heard. Here's the reasoning behind this. Um, well, I can read it, but I can just explain it as well. They're weak sentences because they don't have a stronger noun. So if you're saying um, there are a lot of people here that are. Jewish, then you can say there are many. Oh no, that's also there are. Yeah. But you're not. It's a weak. It doesn't like say anything. Maybe if you're talking about the presence of something, then that you could say there are because you could say there are. But um, the reason. Oh no, that is because. What about that? Oh yeah. No, yeah. No, no, no. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. But but that's a general problem as well. That you, you should you using should this as your subject. Yeah, this, mm. that, mm-hmm. it, they, mm-hmm. he, she. Never do that in any legal writing. You always this is like shit. Now I'm realizing this is an awkward thing. I'm becoming my own supervisor. When when I'm supervising students in legal writing, you take that out. Absolutely, because to me, but this is like the first step of legal writing. You should you, <laughs> to me that you should never use that kind of generic pronouns always specify the name or the entity as opposed to saying they it but if you're writing briefs let me just defend my old self if you're writing briefs and you're talking about um a breach or something and you keep writing about the same breach and the noun appears or like a contract that has like a really long name that you've abbreviated but it's still annoying to be like the contract so you're like this was beneficial because no never yeah never ever ever I'm starting i know to feel like I'm, but my I'm old self 19th century germany as soon as you say this you have the you run the risk of having somebody not understanding what does this refer to right Always specify even if that means that you're using the exact same identification identificator like nine times on the same page never ever do that right shape Joel. up right Joel's pretty pissed. Uh, never end a sentence in a preposition. That's a bit understandable. Let, let me think about this. 
Like, Let's um, see if I can find a, a, a counter, like a, a context in which it would make sense. Because in, intuitively, it, of course, that just means that the sentence isn't complete, which is obviously not a good Right. Idea. I know what you're speaking of. Yeah. Because especially if you're writing, like, I know of which you speak. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. okay. All right. Yeah, but then I right, know what you're speaking of, colon or semicolon, and, <gasps> and then the rest. You can't just, it's not a complete sentence to say, I know what you're speaking of, full stop. Right. So still, maybe right. the rule holds. You, re- you ready for a big one here? Yeah. Comma versus hyphen. When do you use it? Oh, I don't know. I have no <laughs> I, idea. I, <laughs> I literally throw in a hyphen every now and then because I'm like, it's been a while since I hyphen. Yeah, but I, once again, in master students, when I've been a supervisor or helping people uh, with, their, with their writing, a few times uh, students have preferred to use the hyphens too much overuse like you yeah and and so i have like some sort of rule of thumb that that is not rooted in any rational reason that you shouldn't do it too much and if you see it more than like once a paragraph or a few times per page change it into comma instead and that's only based off of some sort of feeling that i have i have no idea why or what the like appropriate proportion is or even what's the difference well yeah so the my rule of thumb that i have in my head that is an unofficial rule that should never be written down or recorded (laughs) is i use a hyphen when i think that i'm talking and you know you kind of like talk in the side of your mouth when you're thinking of something else and you're like so I went to the store, a store that I really hate sometimes. Yeah, like a sidebar. Yeah, exactly. And that's when I'm like, okay, hyphen that. But I've also used a hyphen if instead of a comma, for example, if you say, of course, we should definitely go to the store. A yeah. lot of people put a comma there, but in emails, I'll put a hyphen sometimes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or that makes would. sense. We should go to the store. Whereas like a comma wouldn't be, we. you know, it's not, a, it's its own thing so a comma wouldn't really make sense but then a hyphen kind of just give a period would be a little bit too fragmented yeah yeah why do we care about this well because we spend most of our days just writing and right. this is of course something we should care about similar to dress codes and all the other stuff we've been talking about before on the podcast this is something that we don't really talk about but we should i think right do you like oxford shirts but do you like oxford commas you know what i've changed i think here I, now I do use an Oxford comma. I don't really know why. Maybe because I think it makes me seem more sophisticated. <laughs> I love Oxford commas, but I never use them because I'm not allowed. You're not allowed? For the people that I've been writing with recently, no, I'm not allowed. But I love an Oxford comma, especially if you have a long list. Yeah. And then you just have the and at the end. Or I like an Oxford comma if something in your list also has an and. My favorite sandwich is... Turkey club, peanut butter and jelly, and so I have two ands there. Mm-hmm. So it's great to have the comma because then it divides up. And in that scenario, you would use the comma before the last and. Exactly. But otherwise, you wouldn't use an Oxford comma. Right. Yeah, because that here we once again depart from each other because then you're inconsistent. Oh, oh no no I. Either in a full document, I'll use an Oxford comma, or I won't. I don't use Oxford commas, period. Not not even in the peanut Footnote, butter jelly. I used to love Oxford commas because of this situation. Oh, okay, I see. So you are still consistent. I'm still consistent. Which is, of course, the, like the basic assumption that we should. That's all a good way in. to like conclude this topic. Oh, oh, already? No, no, no. I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you should know where we are. 
at our hotel room where they replenish the minibar. We are in good happy fun time tradition, drinking beer, complimentary beer. Brian is in his bathrobe, <laughs> and we're talking about grammar like any normal person would in this scenario. <laughs> Why? Do you have any other rules that you want to bring up? Not necessarily. I thought the list was longer. This was too much fun. I thought there would be more things to talk about. I also think about hyphens and parentheses a lot. But I think one thing, uh, yet another area where I don't have an actual rule, but rather tend to go on, on feeling, is uh, actual colon or a semicolon. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't even go down that road. Yeah. And it's also, I think in English in particular, I've been taught this, but then I keep forgetting... In certain uh, instances, there are so many people listening to this who are way better at grammar. Uh-huh. I just realized I, I envisioned two people right now who are going to have a crack at this. But okay, so let, then may go ahead and educate us. Yeah, comment. Yeah, what Email I was going to say is if you split up a sentence with a colon, depending on what kind of sentence, the first letter after the colon could be a... Capital? Yeah. No. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This should be an antiquated rule on the list that you were just reading from. Okay. And I still see this from time to time, possibly even in Swedish, actually. But you've never heard of this. No. So it, then it's presumably not it's not a big sentence. thing. No, but there are certain kinds. Actually, the, it depends on the nature of the second part of the sentence, what okay. comes after the colon. If, like, if you... I don't even know this. <laughs> Jesus. What's about, what about colon versus semicolon? Um, I always almost go for a semicolon. When do you use a semicolon? Um, whenever what comes after the semicolon is a full, complete sentence in and of itself. Okay, are you ready for the rule? Yeah. Here's our suggestion. Generally, the wor- first word following the colon should be lowercase if the words after the colon form a dependent clause. If the following phrase is a complete independent clause, you may choose to capitalize. Good. That explains it. Because in that latter scenario, I'd rather use a semicolon. If it's a if it's a separate independent a class a, mm-hmm. a clause exactly. Mm-hmm. So maybe that is why I haven't thought that much about whether or not I should capitalize the first. But then, what about a colon? See, yeah. A colon versus a hyphen, and then there's the long hyphens and the short hyphens. Yeah, never use the short hyphens. Right. Short hyphens are for like first, like uh, so trying to get the words. Yeah, I guess. Yes. On this we agree. And in a word document, you just have to press space and then no, you have to type a, put the hyphen space letter space and then it'll work. Yeah. <sighs> we should do a word document course on here. Oh, you think? No, that so should be its own podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. It's a different thing altogether. I think the takeaway is know your audience and be consistent. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and if your audience is somebody more senior than you who knows more and is typically also paying for what you're doing. It's your exclusive audience. Yeah, exactly. Do you also adapt the substance to the person to whom you're writing? Oh, of course. Because I know, of course, if you're like a speechwriter or something, it's, it, it takes a long time to develop the type of relationship. The to tone. Know. Yeah, exactly. And not just in terms of, of style, but also in terms of substance. Uh, Swedes versus Americans. It's a totally different tone. You talked about this, the minimalist writing of Swedes. Mm, that is true. Oh, so you were able to like do both? Fluently. Oh, we talked about this. Don't use adjectives. That's a style point. That is true. 
but not a substance point it's a style point oh yeah so that's still mm -hmm. within the uh, under the umbrella of, of yeah substance or style when i write for a swedish person i'll use like a more syllogistic if that's a adjective but more of a syllogism so a is b b is c c is d therefore a is d oh i thought that would be the american way no the american way is a little bit more like flowery and forceful and forceful and underline an exclamation point and bolded <laughs> like the tweets of your head of state <laughs> oh capital letters have you ever drafted in spanish yes is there something in particular oh. that we can... <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's no periods or commas in Spanish. Yeah, that is true. That's been my impression as well. And sentences can be extremely long without it being a problem. So you say, the boy that I loved every day when I was a younger child and now has grown up into this really strong man who also has a drinking problem is <laughs> a lawyer. Semicolon. Semicolon. <laughs> then he went to... <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it's, they are all about, but I think what's great about that is it becomes this more ornate language and a more ornate writing style. It's not constricted by these like very, uh, strict sentence True. deviation. But once again, we aren't, we aren't poets. In, we are Spain, to, in Spain you are. <laughs> in Spain you are. In Farsi you are. <laughs> Poet slash lawyer. Yeah. I mean, if some some languages don't even have strong grammar rules and for the sole purpose of being able to use it in... A creative way all right we're done and we look forward to presenting all of our interviews in the upcoming episodes follow us at the arb station on twitter and email us at the arbitration station at gmail.com and just let you know that our listeners are part of a community and we're growing and we've been shaking hands over here in sydney uh and we're just super excited on how should we maybe just say a few words on who's coming up on the, the next episodes. Sure. We've been talking to a lot of people uh, over the previous three days, full-time interviews, both scholars and practitioners. Who do we have? Just a, a random sample. Catherine Rogers talking about arbitrator intelligence. Meg Kinnear on ICSID and being Secretary General. Uh, and we already advertised Campbell McLachlan and Matthew Weininger on their new second edition of the major treatise. Klaus von Wobeser on what he would have done if he knew what he knew now. Stavros Brekulakis on public-private arbitration and how uh, certain types of contracts should perhaps be viewed as public law contracts rather than commercial contractual relationships. Ben Hayward talking about conflicts of law issues, which I was very interested in. Many, many more. This is just a sample. There's more, more to come. Uh, and the first hardcore substantive issue from ICA will be published next Tuesday uh, on the regular arbitration station schedule. G'day, mate. <laughs>